Hi everyone. I originally wanted to upload this episode yesterday and do all the things that I normally do. Yesterday, though, I ended up spending the whole day at the lake. Thank you to my friend who invited me. And when I made my way home last night, it was close to 9 p.m. Tired, hot, and wanting sleep. Clearly, I did not upload an episode or even record the episode. I digress, though. Those of you who follow me on Facebook, you'll note that I posted a clue photo with the words, Live, Laugh, Lobotomy. And really, that actually tells you everything you need to know about this episode. We're going to be talking about lobotomies. And it, I, it, it's really brutal. The creation of it was brutal. The absolute lack of knowledge about the human brain made this procedure considered the cure-all procedure. And I mean, it's older than you think, but we're going to be getting into what happens after you get a lobotomy, when the last lobotomy was, in the States anyway, the last known um, lobotomy took place in 1980. France was the last place to outlaw the procedure. And once we get further into this episode, you'll understand why I'm I'm so shocked it took until 1980. 1980 does not feel that far away from me, but uh, that's aging myself, and we're not going to go there today. So if you're new here, this is Murder, Mystery, and History. My name's Christy. So you're probably asking yourself, if you're unsure, what exactly is a lobotomy? It's a form of nurse neurosurgical treatment and this was used for psychiatric disorders as a general example this was used to treat epilepsy and what would happen is it would sever the connection in the brain's prefrontal cortex the problem with this is it's brain surgery designed to treat a psychological condition and in my opinion this did more harm than good what they would use to sever the connection is this surgical tool similar to an ice pick and it was sharp and it would sever the connections between the frontal lobe of your brain which controls kinetic cognitive functions like memory emotion problem solving skills like these are some skills that you actually need as a person but the creation of the lobotomy the earliest known version of a lobotomy would involve drilling holes in a patient's head and injecting ethanol into the brain to destroy any nerve connections. And that's, that's a lot. I could not imagine having something drilled into my head and then having ethanol. Ethanol, of all things. Now you're probably asking yourself, what exactly is ethanol? It's actual alcohol that you would physically drink, but still. So what would end up happening is there's actually two types of lobotomies that you could get. A transorbital lobotomy and a prefrontal lobotomy. And when we talk about the transorbital lobotomy, you would have this ice pick-like surgical tool, and it would go directly, it, the person who was doing the lobotomy would go directly 
into your eye socket up to your brain. As if that's not traumatizing enough, like that's horrible. But when we talk about the prefrontal lobotomy, the surgeon would drill holes in either side on the top of the person's skull. And then they would use a tool to manually sever the nerves between the frontal lobe and other regions of the brain. And this is terrifying at best. Like I can't imagine ever having to get this done. Thank God it, you, you, you don't get this done anymore. So you're probably asking yourself, who thought of this? So we're kind of going to go through the history of the lobotomy and I want to talk about a few people whose records of getting lobotomy and what their thoughts were on this. So we're kind of going to be going back and forth here, but just bear with me. So in 1888, we are going to catch up with, the, with this Swiss psychiatrist named Gottlieb Buckhart. And he is considered the first person to have tried giving lobotomy. He would operate on six patients under his care in a mental asylum. And he would actually remove parts of their brain in the cerebral cortex. And he decided to do this because he had three views on the nature of mental illness and its relationship to the brain. First off, his, he believed that mental illness was organic in nature and it reflected an un underlying brain pathology. And he also felt that the nervous system was organized according to a model relating to an efferent system, meaning a sensory center and a connecting system where information would take place, which is the association center and then going to the output center, which would be the efferent center, and finally a part of the brain where mental facilities were connected to specific regions of the brain. So he basically felt, in layman's terms, that there were certain, I want to say, legions or parts of the brain that needed, needed to be cut away to relieve mental illness. And he thought if he deliberately created lesions or cut areas out of the brain associated to the efferent or afferent center of the brain that he could create a transformation in the behavior that he could cure them now this is so touch and go he also felt that by doing so he could break the line of communication with the mental illness and the person could remain someone back to their normal faculties. So he would begin to operate on patients in December of 1888. But it, the way he was doing it and the instruments he was using were pretty crude and other other doctors were pretty against what he was doing. He ended up operating on six patients in total. And according to him, two of these patients experienced no change, and still had severe mental illnesses. One became quiet, or two, pardon me, two became quieter. One patient would experience epileptic seizures and would die a few days later. And one patient was completely cured. And what he would notice is that this, the complications that went with his hypothesis would include motor weakness, epilepsy, sensory aphysia, and word deafness. He would claim a success rate of 50%. 50%. So, 
five out of these six people were not cared by his own admission and he ended up like writing this peer report talking about the great miracle of lobotomizing and his medical peers were against what he was doing uh, the reviews were hostile he basically got told you cannot be doing this this is not safe stop so he stopped so Gottlieb Burkhart didn't do any form of brain surgery again. So this is kind of the beginning of, of lobotomies. But in 1912, we meet two physicians in Russia. We have the leading Russian neurologist, Vladimir Ketarov, and an Estonian colleague who was a neurosurgeon named Ludwig Pusat. And they would actually publish this paper. And in this paper, they would actually talk about how Gottlieb Burkhardt created these brain surgeries to try and heal the mentally ill. And they actually opinioned in this peer report or this paper that they had written that a trained medical doctor should know better than to have ever done this. That it was an absolute monstrosity that he thought it was a good idea. However, it's interesting to note that in 1910, two years prior to this paper being written, our friend Ludwig performed surgery on the brain of three mentally ill patients, attempting to lobotomize them. It's interesting enough that he wrote a paper disagreeing with it, saying that no trained surgeon or doctor should do it but he neglects to say in this paper but i tried it and it didn't work for me so i i find that very interesting that he tried it on three patients and he actually would abandon the attempt because his results and experience were unsatisfactory or didn't work and this was probably the reason why they wrote this paper jointly and it was directed directly at gottlieb burkhardt it's interesting. What's also interesting is despite the fact that Ludwig Pusset had criticized Burkhardt so much and said this wouldn't work, you shouldn't do this, no trained doctor, like all these thoughts that he put in the paper, in 1930 he worked closely with a neuroserological team in a hospital near Turin and actually created a center for the adoption of, guess what, lobotomies. Figure that one out. But at this time, it was called a leukotemi. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. We're going to keep going. So leukotemi was first, it first happened in 1935. And actually, now we're going to meet a Portuguese neurologist. His name is Antonio Manois. Now, Antonio thought that there was something here, that lobotomies or leukotemies, there was something there, and this, this might actually help. So, Antonio actually didn't know how to do any neurosurgery. He had gout. The procedure, when he, when he did the first, well, he didn't really do it. He had an assistant 
do the first leukotomy in 1935. So the intention, what they tried to do was make this work. So as I stated before, they were drilling holes into the head to try and sever the nerves to get to the part of the brain. So the intent here was to remove fibers that connected the frontal lobes to the other centers of the brain. What Antonio and his assistant decided to do is they injected alcohol or ethanol into the white matter of the prefrontal area. And the prefrontal would be the front of the brain or prefront, prefront of the brain. So probably prefrontal is the front of your head. So it's at the top of your head, basically. So they wanted to destroy any connecting fibers, any, any frontal barriers. Now, once they get to create these lesions in the head, they would consider this a success and they would declare the first person they did it on cured, but the patient was never cured. The patient was never just discharged from the mental hospital where they tested this theory. And the thing is, these were people who were severely ill. These were people who really had no consent to a procedure. And I think it's disgusting. I do think it's disgusting. And the reality of things is, if you were in a mental assignment asylum up until, I want to say, the 80s, you were considered a guinea pig. And it's gross. I think that's gross. I will always champion for mental health. Now, let's keep going. So Antonio and his assistant would would say and persist with this method of injecting alcohol into the frontal lobes for around the next seven patients. But after having to inject a few more patients, they decided what was and wasn't a favorable result. They would start to modify which, se which section of the frontal lobes in the brain. It took until the ninth patient, the ninth patient, for them to create a surgical instrument, which was called a lectomy. And this is a cannula, which is a tube, and it was 11 centimeters long, roughly four and a half, 4.3 inches, and two centimeters in diameter. It would have a retractable, a retractable wire loop on one end. And when it rotated, it would produce a one centimeter and cut a circular lesion in the brain. Now, what they had started doing is they would, each frontal lobe, they would cut lesions in. Typically, they would cut six lesions. So there'd be six parts of the brain missing, like in each frontal lobe they would cut six parts out. And if they weren't happy with it, or they didn't think the cut was good enough, they would do it again. And they would produce multiple lesions in the left and right frontal lobes. And it's, I can't imagine sitting through that. I can't imagine being tied down. Like this is a horror story, quite frankly. And any post-op assessment that would take place, it would be one week to 10 weeks. There wasn't really a standard procedure. 
and each complication it was completely different when we talked about complications earlier from Gottlieb they're completely different from here the complications would be a fever vomiting bladder and bowel incontinence diarrhea psychological effects such as lethargy timing kleptomania abnormal signs of hunger like it's there's so many things here that quite frankly are just red flags like we have all these different all these different um complications and yet we're still doing this we don't like there was there was not a science to this i don't think that it was I, I, I still think it's barbaric, and that's where I'm at with that. It is barbaric, and it's only going to get worse. So, the year after Antonio did this, word's spreading through Europe. Word's spreading to the United States. And it reaches an American neurologist named Walter Jackson Freeman. And he decided that this is the procedure. This is the cure-all. I'm going to rename it. And he renamed it lobotomies or a lobotomy and he would modify the surgery and change it and he'd introduce the use of surgical tools instead of alcohol he'd create the prefrontal lobotomy going through the eye socket so in september of 1936 walter freeman had a partner named james watt he was also a neurosurgeon and they would together perform the first prefrontal lobotomy in the United States. And they've been they had been doing this for years. In 1945, Freeman would change the procedure again and he would call it the transorbital lobotomy. And he could do he could do this without leaving a scar. I just want to make a quick um I made a mistake there. I said when they performed the prefrontal, I said it was, pardon me, through the eye. But again, I was wrong. Prefrontal was drilling um, holes in your head. So they did create the transorbital lobotomy, which was going in through the eye socket. And the reason that Walter Freeman would modify the procedure in this way is so he could perform the procedure quickly without leaving any scars. What's interesting is in 1935, we're just going to jump back here a bit, Walter Freeman would actually meet Antonio Menez, and he felt that Antonio was just genius. Just genius. And according to Walter Freeman, had they not have met in person, it's highly unlikely he would have even considered the lobotomy. It's, it's interesting to note that. So when we talk about Walter Freeman and the transorbital lobotomy, it's interesting to note that when he had done the first prefrontal lobotomy that would still require drilling holes in the skull, surgery would have to be done in an operating room by trained neurosurgeons. And Walter Freeman believed the surgery would be too expensive, unavailable, and to those who needed it most, they would be unable to get it. And the people he believed that needed it most would be in state mental hospitals. And they wouldn't have an operating room, surgeons, anesthesia. They would have limited budgets. 
So Walter Freeman decided that he was going to change all that. He was going to create a procedure so it could be carried out by psychiatrists in psychiatric hospitals. Now, there's a lot to unpack by that statement alone. Alone. We'll get to that in a second. So Walter Freeman thought to himself, how can I make this easier? How can I make this so easy that even anyone can do it? So he thought he could approach the frontal lobes through the eye sockets instead of drilling holes in the skull. In 1945, he took an ice pick from his own kitchen, mind you, and he began to test this on a grapefruit. And cadavers. So what he would do, what he figured out, is by lifting the upper eyelid and placing the point of a thin surgical instrument, often called an orbiclast, under the eyelid and against the top of the eye socket, a mallet would be then used to drive the orbiclast through the thin layer of bone and into the brain along the plane of the bridge of the nose as a guide. You would turn this orbiclast around 15 degrees and then it would be mallet. You would take the mallet and then go two inches into the frontal lobe and turn it 40 degrees so that the tip cut toward the opposite side of the head towards the nose and the instrument would then be sent a further four and a half inches into the brain before it would be pivoted around 20 degrees to each side. So basically you would have something going through your eyelid and then somebody would take a mallet and put it almost three inches to your head, into your eye, and then swirl it all around. And this was considered the cure-all. It was considered a cure-all for everything. If you had depression, get a lobotomy. If you were schizophrenic, a lobotomy would fix you. If you had epilepsy, go get lobotomized. Your life will be so much better. So Walter Freeman would perform the first transorbital lobotomy on a live patient in 1946. Now, because of how simple this was, everybody thought it was a cure-all. You could go get it done in the office. This would take 10 minutes. And Walter Freeman would suggest, instead of conventional anesthesia, if it was unavailable, use electroshock therapy to render the patient unconscious. Electroshock therapy. I'm going to let you look that up and then that's 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 a whole other thing. And Freeman's so convinced that his 10-minute lobotomy was going to revolutionize medicine and he would spend the rest of his life trying to prove that point. Anyone who had watched that first procedure, if you were to ask them to describe it, the patient would be rendered unconscious by electroshock therapy. Freeman would take his ice pick, insert it into the patient's eyelid and through the orbit of the eye, and he would do this on both sides of the face. And I, I, this is, imagining that is a lot. Aside from the fact that this didn't work most of the time, Aside from the fact that this is traumatizing, aside from the fact that, like, you're causing more harm than good, 
this man spent the rest of his life trying to to prove what he did and I there's a lot of proof of why you shouldn't so by 1947 Freeman and Watts their partnership had ended Watts was disgusted by Freeman's modification of the lobotomy from being an actual surgical operation into a simple office procedure he was disgusted and it between 1940 and 1944 684 lobotomies were performed in the United States just because of how they promoted this those numbers would increase sharply by the end of the decade and I mean Watts was disgusted he thought this was being played off as a cure-all for everything it shouldn't be a 10-minute procedure it should be surgical it should be clean etc and by 1949, the lobotomy had caught on. And I mean, Walter Freeman's like going around the country lobotomizing patients in mental institutions. And there were a lot of bad results, tragic results, a lot of in between, maybe some excellent results, but this would spread like wildfire, wildfire, because there wasn't really any alternative treatments in the 50s. And people who were seriously mentally ill were always, their family was always looking for a way to make them better. Always. And drugs weren't even introduced until the mid-1950s for any mental illness. And institutions and mental asylums were overcrowded. Families wanted to try everything. And that's... That's so sad that, like, such a brutal procedure was getting promoted this way because people just wanted their loved ones back. And it's, it, it just makes me so sad that this caught on when there was no alternative. So we reached 1950 and the lobotomy revolution, everybody wants to do it. And news reports would describe this as easier than curing a toothache. And Walter Freeman, for his part, loved it. He was a showman. He loved to shock his audience of doctors and nurses by performing two-handed lobotomies, hammering ice picks into both eyes at once, treating this like it's a game and he's the ringleader. By 1952, he performed 228 lobotomies in a two-week period in West Virginia alone. Of those 228... 25 women in a single day. Walter Freeman's on top of the world. He thinks, you know what? Lobotomies can be used on anybody, just not the incurably mentally ill. And that is terrifying. So when we talk about how many lobotomies since the craze had caught on in 1949, 507, 5,000 and 74 procedures were done. By 1951, 18,608 individuals had been lobotomized just in the United States. Walter Freeman becomes this crusader for the procedure. Before his death in 1972, he would perform transorbital lobotomies on some 2,500 patients in 23 states. Now, we're going we're gonna to get into, I've got some accounts here of people 
who have been lobotomized. And we're going to talk about that. So if you are sensitive about child abuse, the first person we're going to talk about, it's going to break your heart. And I'm so sorry. It broke my heart reading it. So one of the youngest patients today, who at the time when I found this information was 56, he would be 72 years old now. His name is Howard Dully. He was a 12 year old boy when he got lobotomized. 12 years old. And Howard was, was really, I don't, he embarked on this quest. He wanted to know why, as a 12-year-old boy, he needed to get lobotomized. What was the point? And Howard would actually go visit Walter Freeman's son, relatives of patients, anybody he could find who had been lobotomized to live to tell the tale. According to him, if you saw him, you'd never knew he had a lobotomy. The only thing you'd notice, he was tall, he would weigh almost 400 pounds, but he always felt different. He always wondered if something was missing from him. He had no memory of the operation and he never had the courage to ask his family about it. So he decided to try and find the information. He decided to try and figure out on his own why 12 years old, he needed a lobotomy. So Howard Dully, his mother died of cancer when he was five and his father would remarry and Howard would state his stepmother hated him. He never understood why, but he knew she would do anything to get rid of him. So he ends up finding Walter Freeman's files, and they're, or they're archived at George Washington University. And it actually turned up a lot of clues about why, why he had gotten a lobotomy at 12 years old. And I mean, it's pretty rare that you would find the actual notes, because it's usually you know, under patient confidentiality. But it's interesting that we have it because now we kind of have Walter Freeman's point of view, what happened, why he did it, etc. So according to Walter Freeman's notes, the stepmother said she feared her stepson. She would describe him as defiant and savage looking. Her name was Lou Dully. And she would state he doesn't react to love or to punishment. He doesn't want to go to bed, but then he sleeps well. He daydreams too much. And when I ask him about it, he says he doesn't know. He turns the rooms, he turns lights on when there's broad sunlight out there. And on November 30th of 1960, Walter Freeman's notes state, Mrs. Dully came in for a talk about steps on Howard. Things have gotten much worse and she can barely endure it. I explained to Mrs. Dully that the family should consider the possibility of changing Howard's personality. I explained they should get a transorbital lobotomy. Mrs. Dully said it was up to her husband. I'd have to talk to him. I'd have to make it stick. Hello, evil stepmother. There's no reason to lobotomize a 12-year-old boy. He's going through puberty. I get the vibe that this woman did not like him did not want the stepson and felt it was an inconvenience. And that's horrible, horrible. December 3rd, 1960, Walter Freeman writes, Mr. and Mrs. Dully have apparently decided to have Howard operated on. I suggest they do not tell him. 
So this woman brings this boy that's 12 years old, submitted by his father and his stepmother for a lobotomy. It cost $200. During this, the orbiclast was inserted through each of Howard Dully's eyes, almost three inches into his brain. January 4th of 1961, Walter Freeman writes, I told Howard what I'd done to him, and he took it without a quiver. He sits quietly, grinning most of the time, and offering nothing. This is two and a half weeks after Howard Dully had experienced a lobotomy. Now, Howard states that when his stepmother realized the operation didn't turn him into a vegetable, she got him out of the house. He was made a ward of the state. He eventually had a drug and alcohol problem. He eventually was homeless. And he, he'll state it took him years to get his life together. And he's been haunted by the questions, what did I do to deserve this? Can I be normal? How could my dad let this happen to me? And for over 40 years, Howard Dudley never discussed the lobotomy with his father. And actually, in late 2004, Howard actually got his father to talk about it. And he's asking, why did you do it? How did you find Dr. Freeman? And his father will state, Rodney Dully replies, she took you. I think she tried to talk, talk to some other doctors who said, there's nothing wrong here. He's a normal boy. I got manipulated, pure and simple. She sold me and Freeman sold me and I didn't like it and I shouldn't have done it. I got manipulated. And the thing is, Rodney Dully will say of his, of his wife, it was the stepmother problem. I never wanted this to be done. They had to sell me on this. And for me, I'm like, Mm, this was the 60s, you could have said no. You're his father. And according to Howard Dully, his father would take refuse to take any responsibility. And it's, he'll also state, I'll never know what I lost in those 10 minutes with Dr. Freeman and the ice pick. And he'll also state, by some miracle, it didn't turn me into a zombie, crush my spirit, or kill me. But it affected me deeply and this was an operation that was supposed to relieve suffering and it did the very opposite in the case of Howard Dudley he's felt horrible since then he's felt like he should be ashamed of himself he's felt like he's had a he's been a freak it's disgusting that a 12 year old boy like disgusting so when Freeman would perform the procedure of a transorbital lobotomy for the first time on January 1946, he had a patient that was just a housewife, just a housewife, pardon me, that was a housewife named Ellen Ionsoko. Her daughter, Angeline, was actually there. And Angeline will state that Ellen was violently suicidal beforehand. And after lobotomy, it just stopped. It was peaceful. And she doesn't know how to explain it to you, but 
It was like turning a coin over that quick. So whatever he did, he did something right. Now, Ellen, who at the time when I found this information, she's passed away now. She was 88 years old and she was living in a nursing home. And when you asked her about Dr. Walter Freeman, she would just say, he's a great man. That's all I can say. But she couldn't remember anything about him. Very little. She couldn't even remember what he looked like. So when we discuss Anna Ruth channels, she would suffer, pardon me, she would suffer from severe headaches and was actually referred to Walter Freeman in 1950. He would prescribe the transorbital lobotomy. And while this did cure of the crippling migraines, it left her with the mind of a child. She had no concept of social graces. If someone was having a party at their house, she would just walk in, just take a seat too, and just like, hey, my name's Anna. And it's just, it's, it's so hard to see any goodness. So in 1953, Rebecca Welch has a mother named Anita. So Anita went, underwent a lobotomy by Dr. Walter Freeman for postpartum depression. Rebecca believes that because Anita had this lobotomy done, it destroyed her life because Anita would spend the rest of her life in mental institutions and in a nursing home. And she fully believes that the lobotomy destroyed her mother's life. She will go on record saying, I personally think that something in Dr. Walter Freeman wanted to be able to conquer people and take away who they were. And the thing is, I don't disagree with that. After 2,500 operations, Walter Freeman will perform his final ice pick lobotomy on a housewife named Helen Mortensen, pardon me. In February 1967, she would end up dying of a brain hemorrhage and Walter Freeman's career was finally over. It was finally done. He would end up selling his house and he would spend the rest of his days traveling the United States in a friggin' camper, visiting old patients, trying desperately to prove he wasn't a monster, trying desperately to prove that his procedure had transformed thousands of lives for the better, and he will end up dying of cancer in 1972. It is nuts. It is nuts that this man thinks or thought that this was the cure-all. And I'm going to, I didn't, there are a lot of people who got lobotomies and each one of them deserves their own story but I'm going to read off some of the most common lobotomies that left an impact and to show you how badly this, this backfired. So we have Ava Perot, and she underwent a lobotomy for the treatment of pain and anxiety in the last months of her life. And Eva Perone was the last wife or last president's wife of Argentina. And I, you should look into that. Now, there was a man named Phineas Gage in 1848, and an iron rod was actually driven through his head. And this was consult considered an accidental lobotomy. And this is actually how they just, lobotomies were created. But 
Swedish modern pa modernist painter Sigrid Hareton died following a lobotomy in 1948. American playwright Tennessee Williams, he wrote um, Streetcar Named Desire. His older sister Rose would receive a lobotomy that left her incapacitated for the rest of her life. Josef Hasid, a Polish violinist and composer, was diagnosed with schizophrenia and died at the age of 26 following the lobotomy. New Zealand's author and poet Janet Framed, who received a literary award in 1951, the day before a scheduled lobotomy was to take place. It was never, ever performed, thank God. Rosemary Kennedy, sister of U.S. President John F. Kennedy, underwent a lobotomy in 1941, and this lobotomy left her incapacitated and institutionalized for the rest of her life. And Rosemary Kennedy had an absolutely horrible life from day damn one. Like this was, this never ever really worked because it, you can't, it, it's, you can't go into somebody's brain and just start scrambling things around and calling it a cure-all procedure because this cured nothing. All it did is cause more problems than good in the reality of mental health. There was no, when you say, well, you have a 50-50% guarantee rate, you're saying, well, sometimes it works, but sometimes it doesn't, but usually it doesn't really work. And I find this incredibly brutal and incredibly disgusting that this was treated as a cure-all. 150%. And that's really like the brutal history of lobotomies. And the best praise that I can ever get is if you share the podcast with a friend. And you're probably asking yourself, where can I tell them to listen? You can follow me on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Overcasts, CastBox, Pocket Cast and Radio Public. If there is a mystery you want me to talk about, you can email me at murdermysteryandhistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Facebook, Murder, Mystery, and History, same profile picture as the podcast. You can also follow me on Twitter at Murder, Mystery, and History, same profile picture as the podcast. So if you feel like there's a mystery you want me to talk about, a murder you want me to talk about, any brutal thing like lobotomies, I'm like, I'm into it. Let's do it. Until we meet again.